Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Today marks three years, one month, and 13 days since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, replacing Theresa May and promising to get Brexit done. We will now accelerate the work of getting ready and the ports will be ready and the banks will be ready and the factories will be ready and business will be ready and the hospitals will be ready. And our Within months, he'd called a snap election and led the Conservatives to a landslide majority, shattering age-old electoral certainties like Labour's Red Wall. We won the biggest Conservative victory since 1987, the biggest share of the vote since 1979. We won seats they never dreamed of losing. With an 80-seat majority in early 2020, Boris Johnson led Britain out of the EU. This is not an end, but a beginning. This is the moment when the dawn breaks and the curtain goes up on a new act in our great national drama. But within weeks, a new act in our great national drama had unfolded, but it wasn't quite what Boris Johnson expected. The next two years would be defined by his government's handling of two global crises. I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. And we will employ every method that we can diplomatic, humanitarian and economic, Mr Speaker, until Vladimir Putin has failed. Eventually, Boris Johnson's downfall would come after a series of scandals, U-turns and the return of alleged Tory sleaze. Firstly, I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply didn't get right and also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. I have concluded that the problem starts at the top and I believe that is not going to change. After a summer of discontent and a looming cost-of-living crisis, the new Prime Minister will enter number 10 tomorrow. What does Boris Johnson leave behind for his successor? And what will be his lasting legacy? He is convinced that that they'll have no option but to welcome him back. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. 
Today, how Boris Johnson changed Britain. I'm Patrick Maguire, I'm Redbox editor of The Times. I've covered Boris Johnson's premiership from the very beginning and I didn't expect it to last just this three years. I was expecting uh, perhaps to leave journalism before Boris Johnson and his remade Conservative Party left office, but here we are. Well, it might not be over yet, but having charted his rise and his time in power, tell me what you made of some of the images this summer that we saw as crises were breaking out across Britain with strikes and the cost of living crisis starting to kick in. And we saw Boris Johnson emerge in a suit in a supermarket in Greece. (laughs) They're a very stark illustration of that overquoted, but I quoted anyway, political cliche from Enoch Powell that all political careers ultimately end in failure. Boris Johnson will know that one very well as a as a fellow conservative classicist like Enoch Powell. And it very much wasn't how Boris Johnson intended to leave office. You know, this time last year, Boris Johnson was talking about serving for a decade or more. And everything suggested he would do so. He was riding high in the polls. And everything suggested if he applied himself to the job of governing, if he made good on the promises of the 2019 manifesto, that he could go on and on and on as Margaret Thatcher said about herself. But uh, in the end, he didn't. And in the end, he he ended up sitting out his summer uh, pariah within his own party, living it up in Greece, getting married in the Cotswolds and uh, generally living down to the worst expectations his party had of him and perhaps vindicating what his critics had said in 2019 when they warned that electing Boris Johnson, no matter how convenient it was for the Conservative Party at that time, would end in... An unseemly disaster, which I think even Boris Johnson's friends would admit is ultimately how it ended. Since he stepped down, what has he been doing? That's a very good question. To understand why Boris Johnson has been doing very little, it's important to remember the political context of that first week in July when the Chris Pincher scandal, the scandal surrounding the conduct of Boris Johnson's former Deputy Chief Whip and what the Prime Minister had known and when and how honest he had been in revealing exactly what he knew or not revealing what he knew, as the case was at the time. There was a real concern that Boris Johnson, if left in office, was going to do something drastic like go over the heads of his MPs and call a snap election and seek a mandate from the people or, if left to his own devices, would act in an erratic and unpredictable way and That is exactly why Conservative MPs chose to remove him from office and that is exactly why he was forced to give an undertaking that he wouldn't make any decisions that would bind his successor. And obviously now we've had a very long Conservative leadership race that has effectively kept him in number 10 as a lame duck. But all the while you've had that set against the rising energy costs and the looming storm that we're all going to face in autumn and instead you've had Boris Johnson unable to do anything, perhaps unwilling to do anything as well, viewing his MPs as an ungrateful herd to use the language he used on the steps of Downing Street when he announced his resignation. So, look, it's been slightly unedifying, I think a lot of Conservative MPs think, but they do have to 
confront the fact that this is what they asked for. And how has that played out when he's not on holiday? You know, when he is back in number 10, what is he doing with himself? Well, there, there was there was a very entertaining moment. Well, the, not the subject matter was particularly amusing, but I think it was a it's a vignette that illustrates the frustration Boris Johnson has felt in these last six weeks in office as a lame duck when energy companies came into number 10 for a round table and they weren't expecting to see Boris Johnson, obviously, because he isn't able to take these decisions or has agreed not to take these decisions. But came down, he popped in unannounced and sat through this round table with energy companies and the explanation given the only inference we could make was that he was bored, sat upstairs above the shop, not being able to take big decisions and decided to sit through anyway. And what else has he been doing? Well, he's been writing frequently for newspapers, in particular, the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. So what's Boris Johnson been doing? He's been trying to future-proof his own legacy and also lay down the gauntlet to his successor saying, look, I was pulled from office against my will by MPs who didn't understand how great a prime minister I was and how transformative my agenda has been for the Conservative Party, you best not abandon it because that is a surefire route to electoral oblivion. And you also see that with his farewell tour. Unemployment at, uh, at record lows. Uh, we've got investment coming to this country on a scale uh, we, we've never seen before. He spent his last week in office on something of a victory lap, very much looking to write his own political obituary. Investment in gigabit broadband, making people's, uh, giving people access to uh, 21st century communications. Fantastic progress from 7% coverage when I became Prime Minister to 70% today. As Churchill said, uh, history will be very kind for me. Uh, as I intend to write it. That's very much Boris Johnson's mentality. It was Boris Johnson trying to justify how he'd spent the past three years and saying, well, no, it wasn't all COVID and Ukraine and Brexit. I did make a lasting impact, even if if you're not now thinking of me in the same breath as Thatcher and, and Blair and Churchill. This is why you should. Patrick, this is such an interesting time, isn't it? I suppose this is sort of when the first drafts of history are being written and clearly Boris Johnson is out there trying to set in stone what he thinks his legacy should be. What do you think he will be remembered for by others? What will his legacy be? Well, to a certain extent, his legacy, or rather the events for which we will remember his premiership, he hasn't been the author of them. They were determined by circumstances beyond his control, what Harold Macmillan called events, dear boy events. Yeah. No sooner had he won that massive majority and wanted to embark on that decade-long project, arguably, of levelling up. But within months, he was forced to deal with the pandemic. And no sooner had the pandemic abated, mere months later, Ukraine happened. All the while, Britain has been, in, albeit in sort of haphazard and, and staggered in piecemeal fashion, extricating itself from the EU, which of course was the other big event of Boris Johnson's premiership. And that's the one that he did have a degree of authorship over, the decision to leave the European Union, which, you know, the top line of his obituary will be Prime Minister who led Britain through Brexit, mm. the COVID pandemic and war in Ukraine. And in terms of Brexit, which, you know, you're right, it's something that feels like he authored really from the start, but how, how will that be remembered? Is it something he has now fully achieved? Well, Brexit you might say, will never truly be done given that it's 
necessarily a dynamic process. There'll always be a debate over whether Britain should align more closely or extricate itself further from the structures of the EU or indeed rejoin. That's not a live political debate yet, but I imagine in the years to come, um, people might stick their toes into the water of that one. Um, Has Brexit been done? Well, ultimately, Boris Johnson's own government has spent most of its time in office trying to unpick its own Brexit deal in Northern Ireland. And Liz Truss promises that she will uh, complete that job by triggering Article 16 uh, of the Northern Ireland Protocol and suspending the Brexit deal that puts that border down the middle of the Irish Sea in the first weeks of office. So look, by Boris Johnson's own definition, Brexit hasn't been done. The deal they signed in 2019 is not to this government's satisfaction, is not to the Tory party's satisfaction. So where Boris Johnson has succeeded in removing Britain from the immediate orbit of the EU in terms of its regulatory structures, and he would say, well, look, as he often does to Keir Starmer at PMQs, or often did rather, he would say, you know, Labour are a party of Remainers and it was only my decision to to leave the EU that allowed us to roll out the COVID vaccine faster than the rest of Europe. We saved thousands of lives and we were finally rescued by the genius of British scientists and by a vaccine that was licensed faster than any vaccine in the world and a rollout that was faster than any comparable country. And faster, of course, than we would have achieved if we'd listened to the leader of the opposition, Mr Speaker. But Brexit hasn't been completely done, despite Boris Johnson running on that platform in 2019. And this is an issue that will haunt his successor. Coming up, how Boris Johnson broke the rules and what that means for British democracy. That's in just a moment. I'm Louise Callaghan, a foreign correspondent for The Sunday Times. I work from the front line of international politics and war, bringing you stories from Ukraine to Syria and Yemen. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Throughout his time in Number 10, Boris Johnson earned both praise and criticism by bending the rules and railing against established norms and institutions. His rule-breaking over lockdown parties and the police fine that followed would ultimately be the start of his downfall. And it's what many people will remember. But he also started his time as Prime Minister by testing the limits of the British Constitution. There are two big themes there. The first is Boris Johnson's battles with the judiciary. Obviously, in his first weeks as Prime Minister, he said, I'm going to prorogue Parliament. Jacob Rees-Mogg went to Balmoral to seek the Queen's permission to prorogue Parliament for three weeks to narrow the window with which opponents of a no-deal Brexit would have to legislate against it. In the end, it was proven unlawful by the Supreme Court. And since then, Boris Johnson has found himself at loggerheads with the judiciary. You've had uh, ministers in Dominic Raab, who was the Justice Secretary, trying to curtail the right to judicial review so that judges would be able to make fewer political rulings or sort of overturn government decisions. That way you have the Attorney General, who's often been locked in disputes with the judiciary too. There's a separate issue of um, trying to unpick the Human Rights Act and replace it with a British Bill of Rights, which reared its head when the government's planned deportations to Rwanda were stymied in the courts. And this is something Boris Johnson has lent into repeatedly. And the second big constitutional issue, of course, is the union. He has often found himself at loggerheads with Nicola Sturgeon, and most nationalists would say he's the greatest recruiting sergeant the SNP have ever had because he's so unpopular in Scotland. Saying loud and clear what should be blindingly obvious to everyone that this is not the moment to be having another referendum. This is not... This is not the time... This is not the time for yet more delectable disputations about the Constitution. There is definitely a sense that Boris Johnson has pushed the boundaries of the British state as far as they will go in some cases. But it's important, I think, not to overdo that. I think the British Constitution has more often than not worked in the way that it's been intended to. It has frustrated Boris Johnson, but there is ultimately the possibility that the damage he's done, particularly to the union, may well be irreparable. You know, you've talked about the tensions with Scotland and with Nicola Sturgeon and what that might do for a future independence vote, but what about Northern Ireland? Coming off the back of a three-year period where devolution was suspended between 2017 and 2020, one of the, one of the big achievements of Boris Johnson's first period in, in number 10 in early 2020 was restoring devolution after such an extended period in abeyance. Mm. And the protocol kicks in and the DUP end up collapsing devolution again and are now refusing to go into an executive until the protocol is gutted from the withdrawal agreement, is suspended at the very least. Not only does that create a massive diplomatic confrontation with the EU, as we're likely to see in the coming weeks. But it also means Boris Johnson leaves office with the institutions of devolution really stretched to breaking point, particularly in Northern Ireland. So that is undoubtedly a, a big constitutional consequence of Boris Johnson's premiership and the path he's pursued on Brexit. And Patrick, you talked about those moments when it felt like 
Boris Johnson's government was almost declaring war on, on the lawyers and how they're sort of frustrating policy. How about the media? Has Boris Johnson gone to war with some parts of that too? In the early days of Boris Johnson's government, they announced a boycott of the Today programme. And the view of people around Boris Johnson at the time was that, you know, there wasn't very much point in ministers submitting themselves to interviews that would inevitably cast the government in an unfavourable light. And they made the calculation that the public wouldn't necessarily care, it wouldn't hurt their standing among the public. Consider also Boris Johnson's boycott of Andrew Neil during the 2019 election campaign. We have been asking him for weeks now to give us a date, a time, a venue. As of now, none has been forthcoming. We've always proceeded in good faith that the leaders would participate. And in every election, they have. All of them. Until this one. You've had Nadine Dorries as Culture Secretary openly calling into question the future of the licence fee. And you've also had the privatisation of Channel 4. And you've had uh, ministers... uh, boycotting certain outlets on top of that. Does that amount to a war on the media? It's an interesting question. I think it's another example of Boris Johnson bending the rules of whatever game to suit him rather than playing by the rules that other prime ministers have been bound by. Do you think he'll also have had a lasting effect on parliamentary standards and standards in public life. If we look back over over this period, we've had, for example, Priti Patel being found guilty of bullying but not having to step down. We had Owen Patterson similarly being encouraged to stay on at first by Boris Johnson. Chris Pincher, which actually ended up ending Boris Johnson's career, certainly for now. Partygate, you know, just this, this sense that normal standards don't apply. I think lots of Conservatives would say that was the case, that their reputation will take some repairing, that they haven't been governing effectively and that have come to symbolise a Westminster culture that is, uh, call it corrupt, call it broken, call it whatever you like, that isn't solving the problems that the country is is facing. Um, whether it'll have a lasting impact, well, it's it's too soon to tell, but I think it's, it's striking that Liz Truss where she was asked at the Times Radio hustings whether she would appoint a, a ministerial ethics advisor. The culture of organisations, John, starts at the top, and that's what's important to me. And, of course, I would ensure the correct apparatus is in place so that people are able to you know, whistleblow if there are problems. But if a leader is saying that they don't know the difference between right and wrong and they need to outsource it to an ethics advisor, I think that's a fundamental problem. Of course, Boris Johnson's ministerial ethics resigned. Lord Guyot resigned after one scandal too many. And with saying Liz Truss is the continuity candidate of Johnsonism, it may well be the case that if Boris Johnson has lowered the bar in terms of what a prime minister can get away with, why wouldn't a prime minister follow his lead? Given that bending of rules as much as possible, was he in a way the disruptor that was needed to be able to make something like Brexit happen, to make push Brexit through without necessarily being the sort of person who could govern for, for a long period. Ultimately, why did, why did Conservative MPs in 2019 put aside decades-long reservations about Boris Johnson, his character and his suitability for office? You know, it's often forgotten that Boris Johnson 
cleaned up in the MPs stage of that leadership race. He walked it in every stage of the competition. Why was that? Because the diagnosis Tory MPs made was, our party faces an existential moment here because we haven't delivered Brexit within the time frame we promised. Nigel Farage is snapping at our heels. The Liberal Democrats are eating into our vote too. Jeremy Corbyn might come through the middle. So who's the person, to use the phrase Boris Johnson used in his first speech as Prime Minister, uh, to deliver Brexit, uh, unite the country, defeat Corbyn and energise Britain, dude, as he put it. And Boris Johnson was the only person they thought with the ability to solve that electoral conundrum. Now, as you rightly point out, electoral politics is always different to the challenges of running a government. Mm. And it has often felt that Boris Johnson has been running a, a long campaign rather than a government. And so the roots of Boris Johnson's downfall perhaps were in the roots of his victory among Tories in 2019. Patrick, every Conservative Prime Minister not only leaves an imprint on the country, but also on the party. Just give us a sense of where the party was before Boris Johnson took it over. Well, every Prime Minister, every Conservative Prime Minister tends to reshape the party in their own image. And I think the best indication for how that's the case, look at the past decade. You had George Osborne and David Cameron. It was sort of very, very liberal by the standards of the Conservative Party, at least, on, on social issues. And it also had a, an adherence to conservative orthodoxy on the economy, you know, very fiscally conservative, preoccupied with the deficit, thinking that the correct response to the economic crisis was cutting public spending. In five years' time, we would have balanced the books. We're on course to balance the books by the end of this parliament. Then you had Theresa May, who looked at that and said, well, look, it hasn't addressed what she calls the burning injustices in British society and was comparatively more flexible on questions of austerity. You know, obviously she didn't completely undo it, but was definitely more receptive to increasing pay for public sector workers or what have you. You know, she wanted to signal that austerity had ended and the Conservative Party had entered a new... Her perhaps moved to say to the left, uh, give us the wrong impression, but had certainly become a... Um, had become a different party that was more alive to injustice in society, particularly those that the Conservative Party, that government policy may have may have caused. It means we believe in a union, not just between the nations of the United Kingdom, but between all of our citizens, every one of us, whoever we are and wherever we're from. That means fighting against the burning injustice that if you're born poor, you will die on average nine years earlier than others. And then you have Boris Johnson, who changed the party again, yeah, was looking to win seats they'd never won before, those Labour seats in the, in the North and Midlands, and thus adopted an entirely new posture that was, at the time in 2019, looked like it was much more uh, amenable to state intervention on the economy, that the market wasn't the answer to everything, that big government infrastructure projects were the way to go and that the state would naturally play a much bigger role in, in society. This is, this is simplified, of course. I will take personal responsibility for the change I want to see, so that with safer streets and better education and fantastic new road and rail infrastructure and full fibre broadband, we level up across Britain with higher wages, a higher living wage. 
at the same time, you you had that allied to a a pro Brexit, very nationalist approach to to the economy. I think you know the best way of putting it would be right on culture and left on the economy. Mm. And now we look at what Liz Truss is running on. Well, it's right on the economy and right on culture. Boris Johnson has almost undone every conservative ideology of the past ten years, including his own, because ultimately at the start of the decade you had a a government that was sort of further to the left on culture and further to the right on the economy. And by the end, you have um, the diagnosis of the... Yeah, exactly. By the end of the decade, the Conservative Party is totally flipped. You know, it has a protean capacity to shapeshift and reinvent itself. And it had become a completely different party. It becomes sort of, you know, like uh, Gaullist in its idea of uh, how the state and the nationality could interact to create a sort of new kind of centre-right politics or a, or, a, or a new kind of old centre-right politics. What do we think happens now? What, what do we think Boris Johnson will be doing as a backbencher? Well, I spoke to a close friend of Boris Johnson about this a couple of weeks ago, and they said there is no way Boris Johnson will not turn up at Conservative Party conference in October and have people uh, queuing around the block to watch him give a speech that vastly uh, overshadows Liz Truss's or Rishi Sinak's first address as Prime Minister. Uh, he'll be writing regularly in newspapers. I'm sure he'll go to the US and lecture for lots of money. But crucially, I think he will stay in Parliament for as long as he can because the Conservative Party will have sellers' remorse and that they'll be in such dire straits uh, coming up to the 2024, 2025 election that they'll have no option but to welcome him back. You know, Churchill fought another election in 1951 and returned. I think that's the example Boris Johnson will be seeking to emulate, but on a much shorter time frame. And in what looks like a nod to a potential return, one of Boris Johnson's final acts as Prime Minister on Friday was to release legal advice that challenges an inquiry into whether he misled Parliament over Partygate. Well, let's get some more from Westminster now. Boris Johnson is said to be afraid that if the inquiry rules against him, he could be suspended or even lose his seat, ending his political career. Certainly Boris Johnson, I'm sure, is concerned about his reputation going forward, knows that this probe is a bit of a a, a danger point. And one reason, of course, Kimberley, he may be concerned about it, is there is a possibility he wants to return to frontline politics or even return to number 10. Ultimately, for him, it does feel like his political career has sort of gone full circle. You know, he's gone from leading the coup to being ousted by one, really. And authority sort of ebbs and flows. Is this just sort of modern politics now, or is this just how the Conservative Party has always functioned? William Hague has a great line about how the Conservative Party works. When William Hague was leading the negotiating team when... The Conservatives were trying to broker that coalition with the Lib Dems in 2010. They were comparing their respective parties. Lib Dems said to the Tories, well, look, the problem with your party is it's an absolute monarchy. So we need a a piece of paper that binds both of us to a five-year coalition so you can't rip it up. And William Hayes said, ah, no, 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 you've got it wrong. It's an absolute monarchy tempered by regicide. (laughs) Uh, That has always been the Conservative Party's way of doing business, you know, mercilessly dispensing with leaders who prove not to be up to the job. 
in our 24-hour, not even 24-hour news cycle, our hourly news cycle in an age of Twitter, in an age mm. of technology and, and the modern media have put this on, on speed, really. It may well be that Liz Truss comes a cropper and is a victim of the same fame. By the end of the day, we should know who the new Prime Minister will be. And tomorrow, they'll become the fourth occupant of Number 10 in just six years. We'll be back then to tell you everything you need to know about the UK's new leader and what might be coming down the political pipeline. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Red Box editor at The Times, Patrick Maguire. You can find all of Patrick's work at thetimes.co.uk, and you can also subscribe to Red Box to get his daily newsletter. The producer was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producers today were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more from Westminster tomorrow. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.